This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Louisiana Purchase, 220 years ago, ushered in an exciting era of exploration and western expansion in the new United States. At least that's one version of history. The $15 million deal by President Thomas Jefferson included much of the land between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains. We'll look at the history and legacy of the Louisiana Purchase through a native lens. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Studies show the nation's aging power grid is not ready to handle the energy shift from fossil fuels to renewables. The U.S. government hopes a historic investment will fix that. The Mountain West News Bureau's Caleb Radel has more. The Department of Energy is spending $3.5 billion on efforts like expanding capacity for wind and solar power and building microgrids that keep the lights on during power outages. Money will also go toward hardening power lines against extreme weather and wildfires. That's led by a $100 million investment in high-risk areas across more than a dozen states, including Colorado, Idaho, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. Margaret Talmadge is with Navajo Power, a native-owned developer of renewable energy projects. This provides an enormous opportunity for us to address transmission congestion, outdated uh, transmission leading to wildfires, a huge opportunity to support renewable energy development in Indian country. She says it's also a chance for tribes to receive the revenue and economic benefits of their projects. For National Native News, I'm Caleb Radel. A Lakota family in northwestern Nebraska was the recipient of a six-figure settlement following a court battle. The case circles a 2021 incident involving the Johnson-Leroy family in Cherry County, Nebraska, just south of the border of the Pine Ridge and Rosebud Reservations. Two of the family's children had their hair cut by school staff, which sparked the discrimination suit. Nebraska state law prohibits discrimination in public schools based on a student's tribal regalia or long hair. The family was represented by the ACLU of Nebraska and the Harvard Law School Religious Freedom Clinic. The suit ultimately sparked change in the Cody Kilgore School District as well, including the recognition of Indigenous Peoples Day and Native American Heritage Month. Further, changes are to be made to the district's student and employee handbooks to note no student's hair should be cut without consent from parents or guardians. Native American Bank has been chosen to administer $50 million in grants from the U.S. Treasury Department to bolster low-income Native American community projects and businesses in Plain States, including Montana. Mark Moran reports. The Treasury Department has given Native American Bank the authority to invest in disadvantaged indigenous communities that often lack access to the capital they need to start and maintain viable, sustainable businesses on tribal reservations or other American Indian-owned land. Joel Smith with the Denver-based Native American Bank says in northern Montana, the investments will show up in the construction of community service facilities on and around the Blackfeet Indian Reservation in Browning. So we're looking at a lot of health care clinics. 
and wellness centers, behavioral health or opioid recovery centers, in addition to child care and schools. The $50 million is part of a larger $5 billion federal investment designed to spur economic growth in low-income urban and rural communities nationwide. Smith says this federal investment will fill the gaps that remain on Indian land that currently aren't covered despite bank and grant funding. But when you layer this on top of it, get the project across the finish line. So in that regard, it's one of the most impactful things because it's making projects happen that really would not otherwise. In addition to new and much-needed community services, Smith adds the investment will also create jobs in the communities where these facilities are built. That was Mark Moran, and I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Penguin Random House, publisher of Contenders by Tracy Sorrell, illustrated by Aragon Star, the story of John Mayers and Charles Bender, the first two Native pro baseball players to face off in a World Series. This and other stories at prh.com slash stories of the land. Support by AARP. AARP creates and connects people to unique tools and programs, helps conserve personal resources, and tackles issues that matter most to individuals, families, and communities. More at aarp.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. For the colonial U.S. government, the Louisiana Purchase was a leap forward in the strategy to stretch the country's borders from coast to coast. The $15 million agreement between the United States and France also touched off an era of forced removal and aggression against tribes both inside and outside the territorial boundaries. This month is the 220th anniversary of Congress ratifying the Louisiana Purchase. It's a major event taught in every basic U.S. history class, but how much of that lesson explores its immediate effect and lasting legacy on tribal people today? We'll take another look at the Louisiana Purchase today from the perspective of the people who occupied and were connected to the land. How familiar are you with the Louisiana Purchase and the Native American history of that time period? You're welcome to join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from New Orleans, Louisiana, is Dr. Laura Kelly. She's a professor of history at Tulane University. Hello, Laura. Welcome to Native America Calling. Hello, Sean, and thank you so much for having me on the show. And I'm really excited to have this conversation with you and all the guests and everybody out there listening. And I think a much-needed um, correction to the history that is being sort of taught in general in schools across the nation. I'm excited for the conversation too, Laura. Joining us from Tempe, Arizona is Patty Ferguson Bonney. She's the director of the Indian Legal Program and a clinical law professor uh, at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. She's Poinashan. Patty, you've been here before. Welcome back to NAC. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And speaking with us from Tulsa, Oklahoma, is Jonathan Rohr. 
He's the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Caddo Nation. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me on today. Appreciate it. Laura, please begin by reminding our listeners of the significance of the Louisiana Purchase as it pertains to U.S. history. Oh, wow. Um, So the general storyline is that Jefferson wanted to buy New Orleans, possibly what was then considered Spanish Louisiana, with the idea of securing the Mississippi for the white settlers. And Napoleon, who was interested in fighting a war with England, offers this sort of last-minute deal to James Monroe and Robert Livingston, who were over in France negotiating. And as the story goes, it's, you know, $15 million um, for an untold amount of acreage, which has been, through the lore, broken down to four cents an acre. Um, Jefferson was stuck with this idea of, of it was he was a strict constitutionalist. There wasn't anything in the Constitution about this. It was exceeding his authority. But on the other hand, he said, oh, this is a great deal, and it will expand America um, as he viewed it and expand the land. And so that's sort of what we're told. It's told as a success story. It's told from that you know, perspective of the U.S. government and the perspective of the white settlers and this idea that there'd be more land and it ties into manifest destiny that comes on. Except, of course, we know that there's a lot of problems with this story as it's being told. And the first problem with it is that it's not empty. Um, And manifest destiny, like frontier concepts, I always picture by the settler population of empty lands there for their use. And so that needs a correction. But also I think the larger issue is what were the boundaries? What did Jefferson actually pay $15 million for? And if you look at your textbooks, they'll show very nice, neat maps. And But that's not it. There wasn't, you know, it wasn't like when you and I, if we go to buy a house and we know the exact property lines. We know exactly what we're paying for. There was no exact property lines. It was, you know, all the rivers and the land that touch it, that feed into the Mississippi. So how far north, how far south, how far west? Where, what, what did this, what did this purchase mean? And I think one needs to start there because Jefferson understood that what he had paid for was the concept and what he had paid for was an idea. But possession is nine-tenths of the law, and there's a very good reason why he sends Lewis and Clark out almost immediately thereafter to go spend time exploring, because he had no idea and had to get a better sense of it. So there's not actual ownership of it to say we, we, we think of today and we think of buying and selling land and the U.S. government also owning all this, you know, tons of acreage. There wasn't a defined border to it. There wasn't anything. And of course, it's all being occupied. And a lot of it is also being contested by other powers. So Mexico, the Spanish Empire is going well up into Texas. Um, Britain with what now Canada was kind of going over. Russia has a claim to it. And that doesn't actually even discuss the numerous nations who were, in fact, occupying the land. So I think 
because it's become such a myth in U.S. history that we've stopped examining the actual scenario to it and the actual repercussions, but also what did the Louisiana Purchase really mean? Because it's not like buying and selling property as you and I understand it today. Um, it's buying a concept to it and one that Jefferson had to negotiate time and time and time again. Think about mm-hmm. it this way. If he actually owned that land, then he would have been able to sell it, decide what to do with it, whatnot. It's nothing but a series of treaties and renegotiations as he's in the U.S. government and others try to lay claim to it. Well, Laura, let's talk a little bit about the actual transaction, because as you say, it wasn't a, a purchase of land like we think of in today's terms with distinct boundaries and this question of ownership. But who paid the $15 million? Was that real money? And, and did the U.S. have that much in the first place? That's a great question. And it's a part of the story that I find quite amusing. Um, so, no, the United States did not have $15 million to hand over uh, to Napoleon. And so, in essence, we, um, through the French, um, were able to negotiate largely with Baring's Bank in London for about $10 million of that um, to get a loan. So, put it this way, um, in the end of April, when Napoleon very quickly says, I'm not going to sell you New Orleans and part of what's like what's then called West Florida. I'm going to give you the whole kit and caboodle, but it's $15 million and you need to decide now. Um, and the funding aspect of it was difficult. So the French also said, well, we've got this connection with Bering's Bank. So a bank in London loaned majority of the money to the U.S. government so they could pay Napoleon, so Napoleon could then use that money to then invade England. <laughs> so, you know, it was, <laughs> okay. I think, bankers everywhere in every generation. Okay. Now, looking back, here it is, 2023. People think of it, you know, this smoking deal that Jefferson got, $15 million, $10 million, whatever that price, for this huge, huge, what, what we think of now is this swath of the United States. But at the time... Did the United States view it as as a great bargain? Was there pushback on that purchase at all, or did, was everybody on board? No, there was. It was not. It was. There was a lot of controversy with it, um, and there was a lot of controversy from different different sectors. So um, the people up in New England were very worried because they saw their power diminishing with the idea of this great expanse of land that would one day become state and that they feared that those westerners the people who then the settlers who lived in tennessee and kentucky as they continued to expand westward and that had different political points of view um to new england that you would see a real shift of power in Congress. So they threatened to secede. So that was one group. There's a whole other group that this idea that um, and it was shared by Jefferson, that how could you take a place that was uh, had been under Spanish rule, French rule, had been under, you know, monarchies that were Catholic nations with a Catholic population, how could they be incorporated into the United States? that it would be impossible, that this may be the Achilles heel, that the great 
experiment of the United States would fail by incorporating these very, very foreign people with their very foreign ideas and that they could never be open to democracy. And also that that very large area of land would somehow be too much or too much too soon. So there was a lot of anxiety that was caused by it. And one of the results of that anxiety was that um, the Aaron Burr conspiracy, which was sort of the fear that it would break up the United States. And as a result of that, here in Louisiana, we have a completely different set of laws compared to the 49 other states in the United States. So we have a, a civil code that's based very similar to a code in France, uh, civil law, and then um, common law for our criminal courts. So there was a lot of negotiating going on and a lot of fear about what, what did this really mean, taking on this huge swath of land and the people who lived in it. Laura, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, I want to ask you to talk a little bit more about what the tribal relationships like were with the nation of France uh, before the Louisiana Purchase and how those relationships were impacted after the transaction. And uh, I really encourage anybody listening right now who has any knowledge of the Louisiana Purchase or if you are a member of a tribe that was impacted significantly by the Louisiana Purchase and you would like to share some of that history, some of that information, some of that knowledge, we would really, really welcome your call right now. Our phone lines are open and the number to the Albuquerque studio, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Give us a call. Let's get the phone lines going. We'll be right back. Renowned movie producer Martin Scorsese said he took pains to portray the Osage characters and killers of the Flower Moon with accuracy and sensitivity. We'll talk with Osage citizens tied to the movie and the real-life tragedy behind the film to find out if he was successful. That's on the next Native America Calling. Protect your health and wellness. Help your family and community stay healthy by making sure you and your loved ones are up to date on vaccines. RSV, seasonal flu, and COVID-19 booster vaccines are available now. For more information on vaccines, contact your Indian health care provider or visit vaccines.gov. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the Louisiana Purchase today. If you have questions about this chapter in American Indian history, you're welcome to give us a call and ask. We're at 1-800-996-2848. How did the Louisiana Purchase affect Native American tribes? We're also at 1-800-99-NATIVE. Our first guest today, Dr. Laura Kelly, is a professor of history at Tulane University and Laura, tell us more about the tribe's relationship in that area that occupied the what we think of now as the Louisiana Purchase. What were those relationships like with the country of France around the time of that transaction? Um, with the country of France, I would say kind of non-existent, and only because we'd have to go back a little bit further. Louisiana, um, the area sort of claimed and named after King Louis 
is a French colony up until 1762, and then it's um, through a secret treaty, it passes through um, Spanish colonial, and Spain passes it back over to another secret treaty to France in 1800. But the French prefect doesn't show up in Louisiana until 18 late, no, early 1803. So really, he's just arrived. So the idea of that under French control, again, hadn't really sunk home um, for anybody. But in general, like looking under the, the French period and then the Spanish period, which for the most part followed French practices and policies, uh, the relationship was different than what you would see under in the British colonies or even what you would see in other parts of the Spanish Empire. Um, for the most part, because native peoples outnumbered the settler population and by by a large factor, and also that they were completely dependent upon the um, the settlers were completely dependent upon the different nations for food, for military assistance, for trade, for every aspect of life you can imagine. And this area was was busy. The Mississippi was the transportation highway of the day and the rivers that fed into it um, meant that in this sort of lower river valley, lower Mississippi River Valley, we had, oh, about 35 different tribes, um, depending upon which source you look at, eight different linguistic stocks, and that's like not dialects, but complete linguistic stocks, including Sioux. Um, and and so there's there's a lot that's happening here, and we have large large nations. We have what the French referred to as petite nations, these smaller ones that were recognized um, by the French and then by the Spanish, um, with distinct gift giving practices. And in essence, you see uh, you see governments, um, French Spanish colonial governments, and they're coming in and recognizing the importance and the role that these nations had and in order for them to maintain any kind of semblance of control over over the colony. Um, and so it, it was different compared to in, in the British colonies when you've got, I think, a larger settler population, a larger population of families that are producing kids. That means that that white settler population is growing. Um, but before the purchase in 1803, the dynamics were already changing in this region. They had changed once quite a bit in 1762, 1763, or really through the 1760s when we get the end of the Seven Years' War and um, we see a lot of tribal movement um, from different tribes that are moving from areas now called you know, Alabama, Mississippi, and they're kind of moving across the Mississippi and they're moving away from British-controlled areas, so they're moving away from that confrontation with British. And so you see that shift over, like the Alabama being one um, one nation, for example. Um, and others are are consolidating their power there, but they're also were they're coming up in the late 1790s with the real sort of rise of the plantation economy. And what we now can look back on and see the rise of King Cotton and the rise of sugarcane, which meant that we have other tribes like Honoshen, 
um, that are starting to move further down south bayous, moving again, making this choice to move from one part of their territory to another part of their territory where they're less in confrontation with, um, with that white population because the Americans after the American Revolution are pouring over the Appalachian Mountains and they're, they're seeking to claim land for their own. And that also obviously resulted in a lot of conflict as well. So it was a turbulent time, I think, for, for Native people um, as they were negotiating the landscape. I think before when there were multiple different powers playing around, um, what you do see is, is different nations, different First Nations playing one European power off of the other European power to mm-hmm. their benefit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and right, and start if moving them, are okay. Different. And if I gather correctly, this was that interesting period of North American history in which some of the tribal nations were very much on even footing, both economically and militarily, with some of these European nations. If if I gather that correctly, um, yes. And that's, and that's a part of the story that I feel is often left out because people kind of fast forward mentally to like the trail of tears and they say, well, this story isn't going to end well. So therefore they look back and they feel like, well, there wasn't, that meant that, that native nations never had power, never had negotiation. Like they were always going to be in a losing gambit. And, and the far, that's like about as far from the truth as you can imagine. Um, And so it's another one of those real corrections that needs to be told. And that's how we tell colonial history with this um, indigenous perspective and kind of keep Mm -hmm. it centered in the time. Well, you mentioned uh, the Point of Shannon. Let's talk a little bit more about that tribe. And to do so, we're joined now by Patty Ferguson Bonney, who is a member of the Point of Shannon. She's also a uh, clinical professor at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. And Patty, thank you again for, for joining the show today. And please tell us how your people specifically were affected by the Louisiana Purchase. Yeah, so the Louisiana Purchase had a huge impact on Bornishan, other petite nations within this area because we were smaller nations. We weren't large nations. But as Laura mentioned, during the French and Spanish colonial periods, we, the petite nations had a large population over the what is today the Louisiana region, not the whole um, Louisiana Purchase area, because obviously that's quite large. But for us, we had more people than the non-natives or the Anglo-Americans who were inside what we now call the boundaries of uh, Louisiana or the Mississippi River Valley. And so we had a lot of control. We had diplomacy with these uh, foreign nations. There was a lot of respect. And as was mentioned, we like provided resources. The French, the Spanish, the non-natives who were coming into this area wouldn't have been able to survive without having relationships with the tribes. But when the U.S. bought or claimed to have bought um, the Louisiana Purchase and then people started to 
come over to occupy the area. When we're thinking about the United States with westward expansion, they're trying to negotiate with tribes on the borders, and we're no longer in these borders. And because we were smaller tribes, there becomes this myth that the tribes have disappeared, they've left, um, and because the settlers, the Anglo-American settlers are coming in, they're not really caring about recognizing Native people and their land claims. And so there becomes this myth that we're disappearing and um, even though we're existing, and you can see that in some of the materials. And during these other times with the French and the Spanish, which they didn't really populate this area, um, we're, there's this new replacement of this extensive plantation economy that is relying on enslaved Africans, um, and they are growing. And so as they're growing, they're attempting to dispossess natives of land and ignoring their land claims, basically. And so that becomes very problematic and, in fact, continues to impact us today because the U.S. then later passes the U.S. Swamplands Act, which is basically, you know, giving all of this area, which is, um, you know, our traditional area, saying they're giving it to Louisiana to sell, but they did not give, you know, our Aboriginal land rights. So we've been fighting for those now for years in the federal district courts. And so it had a lot of repercussions. One is how they view Native people. And, you know, of course, soon after the U.S. buys the Louisiana Purchase or alleges to buy all of this area, we're moving into the federal era of Indian law, which is removal and reservations, you know. And so all of this is then moving towards displacing Native people um, and not recognizing their inherent rights. And Patty, reflecting back now, more than 200 years later, it, is there any way to ascertain whether or not, whether your tribal people, whether or not it was France who was the European power that was occupying or the United States or some other European nation? Is there any way to ascertain now um, ultimately who who offered the best terms or, or the best way of life or was the easiest to cohabitate with during now looking back who was the which which country was benefited the your your people the most I think that's um a very um, interesting question that a lot of people from these other countries usually try to say oh but we were we were okay to you, like we were better than the Spanish or we were better than the British. But, you know, in fact, when the French came early on, they didn't bring a lot of people, but one thing that they did is they um, enslaved the Chittimachas. So our community is historically Chittimachas, but other tribes intermarried. And so for about 20 years, they were enslaving and killing Chittimacha people. Um, and they brought you know, warfare. They also brought a lot of disease. So, you know, that's very negative. I mean, on the positive is that they didn't bring that many people. Um, and the Spanish didn't populate Louisiana either um, because of the secret uh, transactions. And so really there were some French people there. But the goal for France at the time when they were looking at buying Louisiana was so that they could have this plantation economy and have, 
you know, Africans, enslaved Africans work on this land, um, which is, you know, also very problematic for the history of African-American people and for the United States that we're not recognizing certain people such as native people and Africans as actually, you know, humans later on um, due to this, this legacy. So, um, and then of course the British were trying to get native people to pledge allegiance to them because of the boundaries of the Mississippi River. So. I, you know, I'm not going to say that one of them was better than the other because of the long-lasting impacts. I think that they all have repercussions, but the Americans, when they took over, failed to recognize or to engage with Native people as at the in the same way um, as our political nations, and that was for a purpose because of you know, the doctrine of discovery and conquest, all of this is embedded in the legal history, you know, of the United States and the U.S. is moving west. And so I think, you know, it all has um, impacts maybe to different levels. But, mm. yeah, I'm, I would say <laughs> that it all has compounding effects on – uh, the ability to continue to survive. Obviously, we were surviving under these other colonial governments because they didn't really have people in Louisiana. So they would be less impactful than the U.S. All right. And, and Patty, you say that the Americans failed to recognize the tribal nations uh, like some of these other European countries did. So now here we are more than 200 years later, can the ripple effects of those policies more than 200 years ago, can those still be felt today among your people? How the Americans, their response, their perspective, their attitude towards the Point of Shannon and others? Yeah, I mean, I think you can see it. We have a number of Gulf, Gulf Coast tribes who are not today recognized by the U.S., even though we have lived in our traditional territories since before the, you know, before the U.S. became the U.S. and before the Louisiana Purchase. And we have been battling to preserve these areas, our homelands and our way of life and our whole existence is basically threatened because of the exploitation of the natural resources of the Gulf Coast. Um, and so that directly impacts our continued survival and our existence. So we need to recognize all of this legal history and the people so that we can, um, you know, continue to move forward. Like we've moved forward despite all of these atrocities, but there needs to be something done um, because we're literally at the precipice of our existence and our culture and our heritage because of what is happening in our homelands. Thank you, Patty. And we've got time to take one quick call before we go into our break. Let's hear from Chanupa now. He's calling in from Pine Ridge, South Dakota, listening on Keeley. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, hello, uh, Sean. Listen, let me share this real fast with Patty. Patty, my grandpa once told me something a long time ago. He told me about the 1840 Act, okay, which is still intact, which is uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, and Nebraska. That was all an independent nation state of freedom. Now, when Thomas Jefferson uh, did this the illegal land swindle, 
we all must keep in mind that this, this white devil did this illegally because he used the states. Grandpa used to say, he mean he meant in our language that the white man speak with a forked tongue. And he said the the boundaries western uh, that includes the expansion of how the Indian policy became that, they were using this acquisition for stealing our land by using state governors for that territorial land swindle. And that's one thing that we all must all stay on foothold with it because regardless of what history says and whatever the white man writes with his pen, the land is still ours. It's, it's not only Chinupas, but it's also Sean's and yours, Patty. So this is a good conversation you guys brought <laughs> up today. We'll put that talking and cheat up. Thank you. I hope. All right. Thank you for that caller there. Chanupa up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Are you a welder? For over 40 years, D&R Tank, who support this show, have provided tanks and tank maintenance to communities throughout the Southwest and is currently hiring experienced welders. Info at 505-873-1101. Thank you for listening. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We are focusing on the Louisiana Purchase today. It was ratified by Congress 220 years ago. Tell us how significant this event was in your tribal history. What did you learn about it in school? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. And we just heard from Chanupa up in Pine Ridge. And Patty, I want to give you a chance to respond to that caller. Uh, he uses words like, land swindler and thief uh, with regard to Louisiana Purchase and some of these other land transactions that occurred around this same time period. Are those fair terms to use, Patty? Well, I think with regards to tribal lands, these are still our lands. We still claim our Aboriginal land as our land. So the failure to recognize um, our land is problematic. Um, there is a way, I guess, that should be recognized, but it definitely was a way to dispossess Native people of their lands, and that was not done in a legal way. Thank you, Patty. Let's now bring in Jonathan Rohr into the conversation. He is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Tribal, Pres Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Caddo Nation. And Jonathan, once again, I appreciate you joining us, and uh, let's continue this dialogue here. The Caddo Nation, uh, your tribe was one of the, the tribal nations that was moved from its ancestral homeland. How much of that had to do with the Louisiana Purchase? Well, uh, you know, it, was, it obviously played a role, but, you know, to kind of go back and, and, you know, to expand upon what Patty shared, it, you know, the, the French and the Spanish um, – uh, colonies or incursions into the Caddo territory uh, kind of started the effects. Um, you know, the, the Caddo were a, uh, a very strong, um, influential uh, tribe in that region, uh, kind of centered around the present-day Texarkana region. And prior to European contact, the Caddo's um, 
the Caddos essentially were formed into or were kind of uh, divided into three major confederacies. Um, the the Caddo Hidacho were um, along the Red River, um, right north of Texarkana. That's kind of the heart of the Caddo ter- uh, traditional territory. Uh, the Hasine were largely located in, in East Texas, and then you had the Natchitoches, who were uh, kind of had the first contact with the French colonizers um, uh, down in the northwest Louisiana area. Uh, and so what happened was, you know, the disease uh, began early uh, being brought in by the Spanish and the French, and that uh, started the, the sort of uh, decimation of the population and the power and influence that the, the Caddo Confederacy And that's an interesting time. Uh, yeah. yeah, are you there, Jonathan? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah I can. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and so what happened in, in with the Louisiana Purchase, it sort of sped up the process of, of uh, settlement. You know, as previously been shared that, you know, the Spanish and French weren't really preoccupied with, with settling the areas. You know, it was, it was trade with the French and um, um, – you know, um, setting up missions with the Spanish and, and trying to find converts to Christianity. Uh, but what, what happened with, with the Louisiana Purchase is it sped up the incursion into cattle lands and, you know, obviously it created conflicts um, and, a, and a direct onslaught with, with all of the, uh, the incursions of, of settlement, you know, the Anglo settlers coming in and, and um you know, it changed the dynamic of what was the goal for the the occupying nation, and so, um, but but more so, what happened, um, I guess, really with, with with the Caddo, they were eventually removed from Louisiana in 1835. Uh, they signed a land session um, with the American government, and they agreed to move into East Texas. Well, at that time, East Texas was in the middle of a, or you know, on the precipice of a of a revolution. And so basically what they encountered in East Texas was more strife and warfare. And they were eventually forced west um, onto what was known as the Brazos River Reservation, uh, west of Fort Worth. And in the mid to late 1840s, um, the last remaining Caddo bands were stationed on this on this reserve with a lot of the other tribes who had been forced there from other areas of, you know, in Texas. And, um, and then they were eventually forced, um, basically had to flee under, under cover of night, uh, up to Indian territory where they're placed now. And Jonathan, during this time period about what was the, the, the population size of the Caddo people? Well, again, you know, right Prior to, to European contact, I, I think the numbers have been placed anywhere from 8,000 to, you know, 15,000. Um, it was a very strong confederacy. The three confederacies constitute a very strong presence in the region. And, you know, the basically, eight, you know, 1803 onward, it was a very uh, chaotic time for the Caddo just due to the, the decimation of their population, the warfare, the disease, uh, and by the time they signed the 1835 treaty in Louisiana, and, and obviously, like like most land sessions, this was not, um, you know, it wasn't really done with full agreement. They were sort of forced into signing it because they had 
no real way to, to sort of fight back at that point. And, um, and so it kind of, it's led to just basically what's an ongoing exile. Um, from what I understand, there were three main um, kind of migrations. There were three different groups. Two groups went up into Choctaw territory and in Indian territory. And a third group went west into East Texas. And they were the ones that were eventually forced onto the Brazos River Reserve west of Fort Worth. And at that time, there was, you know, in 1835, roughly 500 caddos left. Um, and, and by the time the three groups were sort of reunited on, on the present day reservation, um, you know, roughly two to 250 caddos remained. Um, and, and really, I guess what I'd like to speak about today is, you know, outside of the exile that they were forced into and, and the land um, sessions that they were forced into, um, the impact of, of the Louisiana Purchase is, is um, still ongoing to the present day and largely in terms of what happened after the Caddo were removed. The Caddo's were mound builders, um, and they built extensive earthen mounds in their traditional territories. Um, and, uh, you know, they were essentially burial mounds. And so after the Caddo were removed from the area, uh, there's a, a long, long history of the, um, you know, the, the people who came in and occupied the area just to start pillaging and, and uh, looting the graves of the Caddo. Um, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are familiar with the Native American Graves Protection, Protection and Repatriation Act um, called NAGPRA. And it, uh, the Caddo are, I guess you kind of put it as one of the more affected tribes with regards to why NAGPRA was, was passed. Um, the, the Caddo are going to be dealing with uh, repatriation issues for um, probably, I mean, two, three, four hundred years from now, they're still going to be dealing with repa- with repatriation issues. Mm-hmm. Um, the way it's been described to me before is if you think of the world like a table, uh, like a flat surface, if somebody picked up a, gr- a handful of sand and threw it across the table, that is the situation that the cattle are confronted now where um, you know, basically grave robbers who came in under the guise of archaeology um, okay. looted, mass okay. looted graves, and they would take, they would take ancestors and they would take uh, uh, burial items, funerary items, and they would place them at different universities right. and museums across the United States. So, and Jonathan, all along. in some of these contemporary NAGPRA issues that the Caddo Nation is dealing with now, can any of those be traced back to? perhaps uh, some of these issues that came about during the era of the Louisiana Purchase? Well, I, I mean, it, it, I think the grave robbing began early on. I mean, the the burial mounds were, uh, you know, it's not something that you, you wouldn't know about or you wouldn't realize was a burial mound. Um, they're very significant um, structures um, on the landscape. Um, but what what happened was with the removal of of the Caddo people, they were no longer there to sort of serve as protectors over those those mm. you know sacred areas. Um, Got it. And, and so, and and yeah, the, the effects are ongoing, and and it's something that the Caddo are currently dealing with. They've been dealing with for the since the the passage of NAGPRA, and with with the amount of of human remains and burial items that have been looted for the past 100, 150 years, 
this is going to be an issue that they will be dealing with, um, uh, and, and not just the cattle, obviously other tribes, but uh, they'll be dealing with this with this issue for hundreds and hundreds of years. Thank you, Jonathan. I want to go back to Patty. And Patty, what do we know about just, we think of these historical leaders like Napoleon and Jefferson, and, and what do we know about their viewpoint towards uh, your people and the other Native nations that existed during that time and in that area of what the Louisiana Purchase uh, became? What did they think of them? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, maybe Laura would know more about Napoleon, but I don't think they were really focused. Napoleon wasn't focused on Louisiana, the United States, because he had a lot of other things happening in Europe. And then Jefferson, as Laura said, I mean, all he really cared about was New Orleans. They really wanted New Orleans for that trade location. They wanted the river, control of the river. Um, and he had Indian agents. Um, they had some posted in Natchitoches and in that area. And so they had Indian agents, but most of them didn't come to where our area was um, when we're in South Louisiana and the bayous. So, um, you know, as Laura mentioned, they they also did this Lewis and Clark expedition up, you know, in the other areas of the Louisiana Purchase because they really didn't know what was happening in this humongous area of land that the United States was now claiming, but of course not controlling. And there were tribes all around, all throughout the Louisiana Purchase who were still controlling their areas and who to this day still control their areas and their territories. So I don't think that whenever he was negotiating to buy the Louisiana Purchase that his first thoughts were about the indigenous nations within the borders. Thanks, that Patty. That were not defined. <laughs> All right. And Laura, I want to ask you, because as Patty mentions, uh, Lewis and Clark, in, in many ways, the Louisiana Purchase, it paved the door for that westward expansion manifest destiny as you mentioned earlier the frontier exploration and and had the louisiana purchase not occurred when it did how far back do you think that would have pushed that westward expansion in, in terms of decades or even perhaps centuries is it possible that could have been significantly delayed without the louisiana purchase Ooh, um that's a great question i think yeah hypothetically um we had a counterfactual model here um i think it would have been significantly delayed and um because with that with that piece of paper the u.s government feels they have you know sort of first right to be able to go out there and and do that exploring and by definition start laying claim to the land and i think it would have been much more piecemeal and i think it would have been much more smaller negotiations happening over time. I don't think we would have seen sort of the rise of a like an Andrew Jackson who was already going into like Seminole territory and what's now present day Florida and other excursions even before the War of 1812. And of course the War of 1812 launches him onto the national stage and when he becomes president we, we know how that, that story goes. But but that all needed kind of like that that right or that belief or that right that that you could go into this land and you know there there were a lot of different concepts 
happening at the time. Jefferson was somebody who kind of believed in what was been labeled the noble savage, and that was that there was much nobility in Native people, but that they were a vanishing race of people. And vanishing and if you try to civilize them then they lost the aspect of their nobility so it was a catch-22 situation right um and very romanticized and mythologized he also put up this idea at one point that um even after the purchase um that this land west of the Mississippi could become all Indian country. Like if you, there'd be enough land east of the Mississippi for all the settlers. And if all the native people that lived in the Ohio Valley and the Gulf South, if they all would just kind of cross on over to that side of the Mississippi, that you could have these two dual worlds. And while he writes about that, to me, it's as naive as, as, other ideas and naive as the idea and the very you know naive idea like you know the vanishing indian like all of this is all all of this goes to serve the settler population and for people who may have felt even a, a twinge of guilt about their actions they can comfort themselves by saying well they were vanishing well this is better for them well you know however they wanted to rationalize it um but yeah i think the louisiana purchase is that first big step that said, okay, we now have the the right to try to go into this land and see what we can claim for our own in a way that was in a very, you know, European-centric world that I don't think they would have done. Um, or at least it would have happened in very small bites. And mm-hmm. it would have been, I think, a very result as we, you know, as that happened. Well, it certainly is fascinating to consider these historical events and just how events could have unfolded so much differently had uh, some of these policies, some of these key political figures, and, and some of these events just turned out a little bit differently. We do have to wrap up the show now, and uh, big thanks to our three guests today, Laura Kelly, Patty ferguson Bonnie, and Jonathan Rohr for what's been a very enlightening conversation on the Louisiana Purchase from a Native American lens. Join us tomorrow for a conversation with Osage leaders and citizens about the new Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon. Until then, stay well and have a great rest of your day. Good day. Protect your health and wellness. Help your family and community stay healthy by making sure you and your loved ones are up to date on vaccines. RSV, seasonal flu, and COVID-19 booster vaccines are available now. For more information on vaccines, contact your Indian health care provider or visit vaccines.gov. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. The Association on American Indian Affairs and the Citizen Potawatomi Nation host the 9th Annual Repatriation Conference on November 7th, 8th, and 9th. The conference provides in-person and virtual expert training about domestic and international repatriation. Learn how to register at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.